UX Podcast Episode 261. listening to UX Podcast coming to you from Stockholm, Sweden. Helping the UX community explore ideas and share knowledge since 2011. We are your hosts, Pat Axbo. And James Roy Lawson. With listeners in 199 countries and territories in the world, from New Zealand to Morocco. Scott Birkin, author, speaker, and in what Scott calls his first career, he spent a lot of his time leading teams and working with UX design-related projects. Scott has written eight books now, and many of them have become bestsellers. You'll want to check out Confessions of a Public Speaker, The Myths of Innovation, and Making Things Happen. His eighth book is How Design Makes the World. And Scott starts off the book with, in his introduction with this. What is your favorite thing in the world? Why is it better than everything else? The answer is how it was designed. So Scott, when you were writing um, How Design Makes the World, who did you have in mind for the book? I had two audiences in mind. The first one was, well, the, the mission for the book, which explains the audiences, is I look at the world the way I think most designers do or user experience folks do, which is that the world needs help. <laughs> that <laughs> You don't go into design to believe you're going to go on a project team and be like, well, everything's great. Let's keep it all the same. <laughs> you, you become in this field because you think that the world should be better and you, you develop skills to make it better. And so I look at the world and I'm like, we have a long way to go. I mean, even if you look at the web and mobile apps and business tools and everything could be a lot better and it's not. So why is it not? And I think there's two reasons that that explains the audiences. One, I don't think designers are great at explaining design. I think we're actually, it's a weak spot for us. And our biggest complaint is, oh, we're not understood. The VP ignores us. The project manager ignores Oh, what's wrong with them? And that's not a very design-centric attitude. So I think one goal for the book, to give designers better stories, better language, better metaphors to explain what we do, why it's important, and why we're worthy of trust. The second audience, which is a bigger audience, is everybody that we complain about <laughs> uh, executives <laughs> managers coworkers, friends parents people who make decisions in the world that affect design but don't know anything about it and don't have many resources to learn because i don't think we make it easy so those are my two audiences i think designers need to be better at being ambassadors for design and then i think there's a lack of good material for people who are in decision making roles to easily and in a fun way get acclimated and become design literate so that they can make better choices. I think that, that just that thing about how bad designers are at kind of designing our own communication of the profession we work with has uh, always been fascinating to me. It's, it's that, that blind spot that we have for something that really shouldn't be a blind spot. Let's call it UX and see if people understand what we mean. It's, it's weird. Wait, do you mean UX and IA or UI? Wait, let's before yeah. before we actually convince IXD. anybody, IXD. let's yeah. have an argument amongst ourselves <laughs> about what we are. 
<laughs> and at the same time, the whole, you know, management and everyone else who kind of we should be talking mm. to is just backing mm. away slowly, going, "I mean, we're just going to leave them to it." <laughs> right. Of course. Yeah. And in the abstract, mm. every time I have a conversation like this, we all everyone's like, "Yeah, we're kind of bad at this." And then five minutes later, mm. we're on Twitter having the same argument again and again. That's just yeah. embarrassing because it's the wrong fight. It's just the like, no one wins in the, in these battles. Mm. Yeah, which is such a shame when we have, like you said, that we go into design with that like passion of, of changing the world of, of making it better and you know we don't we waste that passion by all the kind of like arguing about what what it is we do and how we describe it yeah it is and it's uh i've been in this in this community for a long time and it seems like it is a perennial problem it is not like a mm. ta an accidental tactical thing it's something fundamental in how either we're trained or how our professional how our profession works and so that, that's why I wrote the book. I feel like there's no, there's, that, that's a big gap for us. We don't spend a lot of time thinking about it. We externalize the problem. So I'm in a good position given a lot of my career was spent on the other side. I was mostly a team leader person. I very rarely had the word design in my job title, although that is my background. So I've been on the other side. I know why I rejected designers' ideas. I, I know why those arguments don't work. Uh, I thought I, had a, I have an opportunity to maybe help solve the problem. You said something there, James, about we want to save the world. I think that's something you address, Scott, as well. We, as designers, put ourselves on these, this pedestal thinking that and, – and most companies actually in design, these agencies have all these mission statements where they say they are going to save the world with design. Why is that a problem? <laughs> well, <laughs> it's, uh, I feel like you're setting me up there. Um, <laughs> It's a problem because designers rarely have that power. Um, to, to, to say, let's, let's take the world out of the equation for a second. Let's just say we have a project that's in trouble. We, we want to save the project. You know, a website, a mobile, whatever it is. We want to save the project. Well, the only people that can really save the project are the people who make the project level decisions. They're the only ones. They mm. can they can change the budget. They can change the goals. They can change who's hired or who's fired. Like that's how you save something. That's how you make something really succeed. But by definition, and sometimes it's a self limitation. Designers don't want that kind of power. We want to have the ideas. So when we say you want, we want to have the ideas, we want to show up and like show the prototype and then hand it off to someone to do all the negotiating and the arguing and the so we say we want to save the world, but anyone who's actually making those decisions is kind of like, how is this going to help me? I got to argue with this VP. I got to deal with that client. We're not going to make, you know, we don't have enough money to pay payroll next month. Like, mm. what are you talking about? It's this artistic, dismissible artistic sensibility that, and pre pretension that because you have ideas that you're going to help anybody. And um, it's... Uh, so I think that on its own is off-putting, as you're suggesting. Anyone who's, who's mm. really in the middle of a project is not looking for that kind of – they want – help me with this. Solve this problem. Mm. Uh, and it's rarely – and the problems really at their heart are not directly about good ideas or not. It's about these other uh, things that we tend to consider as not design problems. Dysfunctional teams and power structures and politics – um, we t oh, that's not design. And I'm like, yeah, it is. If, if, that's, if that's why your great idea gets rejected, then it's a design problem. <laughs> hmm. 
that relates to what your you, you, the term design theater, which I don't actually use that much, but I mean, I see it in your book, and I I wonder sometimes because I've seen it on stage mostly at American events. What does that really refer to? Uh, I don't know where the term comes from. Uh, I, I I agree, it's not used that often, but there is this this habit in business culture of doing things that seem important but are really for show. So there are other kinds of theater besides design theater, but given that we're talking about design, there's definitely design theater. And a classic example Mm -hmm. is the head of design at some organization will come in and talk about the design process. Here's our design process for the organization. And there'll be these lovely lovely steps, empathize, whatever flavor they're, they're talking about. And they'll, they'll presume that because they, as the leader, the head of design, have this design process, that that is literally what the actual decision makers and engineers are going to use to make design decisions. When in reality, the engineering team may be completely ignoring what the design team is doing. They're on their, they have their own <laughs> method. <laughs> they have their own. Yeah. So, so that, to me, is a classic example for designers mm-hmm. of design theater. That just because you put something out there that looks good and sounds compelling, unless the decision makers and stakeholders are doing it, it's just for show. And um, that's sadly a common situation. The disconnect from reality between what the designers want to do or have done and what the people who make the decisions are actually doing. You used the example of um, customer centric as well, didn't you? Yeah, centric organizations, yeah. And, yeah. and that being an aspect of of theater as well. Yeah, I, I think I, I refer to in the book. It's kind of marketing speak that corporations and or and uh, you know organizations will do that. We have we're a customer we're a customer centric company. People go, oh, they're customer centric. That's great. And and then you try to get like support, <laughs> like you, you like your their thing thing broke, and you send an email to their help help me. And you're told, yes, you're in the queue. You'll be get. You know, we'll get to you in like three years from now. And so the fact that they say they're customer centric could have no bearing to the reality of what a cus- the good a good customer experience is like. And so it is a kind of marketing language. And unfortunately, design theater means sometimes a lot of what designers are doing is just a kind of it's just it's a mar- it's a marketing for themselves and what they think they're doing that has no effect, no tangible effect on what the product actually becomes. So are they, uh, I know you've got a couple of questions that you say is um, what good designers can ask. They're, they're a tool, I guess, to help you put this situation back on track, to pull the world back into your good designer's hands. Yes. What, what are those questions for us? So the, the questions, so... I spent a lot of time thinking about how do we simplify all this stuff? Like we, it's so easy to get lost again in methods and theories. And we, we feel like that's our wheelhouse. So we go there, but it's just not effective. So how do you make it? So there's some simple list, like really simple list that can be unpacked to get to all the nuances of what good design is, but it's really simple. Like something that could fit in a tweet could fit on an index card could fit on a, on a PowerPoint slide, uh, so there were four questions that almost every story in the book ties back to in some way. And the four questions to us are really simple, um, but that's part of the problem. So the four questions are, um, what are you trying to improve? Who are you trying to improve it for? How will you ensure that you're successful? And then the last question is, 
who might be harmed by what you make now or in the future. Within our community, like, oh, that's obvious. Like, you can go back 50 years and people in human factors have been talking about these are important questions. But the problem isn't the questions. The problem is that the questions get ignored. And they're ignored because they're often asked in a complicated way. So one goal for the book was to provide these questions, simple to reuse, can put it up and put it your slide deck, review them at every meeting. And it's so simple and lightweight that it makes it easy to refer back to them. And then the book unpacks all those questions and explores why so often the answers that project teams have are bad. <laughs> uh, the biggest one being the third one, how do we ensure we're successful? If you ask any startup founder, what are you trying to improve? They can tell you. And you say, what are you, who are you trying to improve it for? They'll say, everybody, and feel good <laughs> about that answer. <laughs> and we'll, you're laughing, and we're like, that's, that's, that, that means you don't know. Um, but then the, the, then the third question, like, how, do you, how do you ensure this? That's a really a lot of what we do. How do you know? What research have you, what biases have you checked? You know, what research have you done? Have you made a prototype? Have you, and that's a lot of what we do. Um, but to frame it that way about ensuring success is a different way to get in there of like, yes, you think you know what you're doing, but let's explore that more. Like, how do you know? Uh, what biases do you have? What, is there, are there better kinds of data you can get? Who, has the, who is that, really has decision-making power? about to decide what actually goes out the door. Is that in line with the goals of these questions? So those were the four. Mm. Which is nice because it covers the, the, the full spectrum of it, the, the, the problem, the, the, the solution, the measurement, and, and the safety net with the, the ethical side of stuff. Who are we going to harm for this? I mean, I recognize sometimes I think the, who are you, um, what are you trying to improve? That a variation of that anyway is something I know that I say quite a lot during work is when you've you've got to those kind of stalemates or those kind of you're realizing you've spent hours discussing the placement of a button on a little screen somewhere and you you're mm. no longer you're kind of now working out should it be go there or there or there and suddenly it's like well you know what's the problem we're trying to solve here mm. it's not where to place the button which is actually what you're doing in the meeting room but it's it's not you've lost the bigger picture that reminder's vanished at some point in the chaos of it all or in the demands of, of whatever sprint you're in and trying to push something out the, the door. That's so interesting because I went the completely different way when you when thinking about that question because I was thinking about the huge project I'm working on now with nurses uh, trying to improve the interface they're using when they're answering phones uh, for national health services. And then there, some people are saying, so we'll, we'll improve it for the nurses and that will also improve it for the citizens. Oh yeah, and then we can add statistics and that will improve. And in the end, we don't know well which which one of them are more is more important than the other, and which one do we start with and start forgetting. Yeah. So it's so just having those questions, I realized, made me think about well, what do I really mean when I ask this question? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that the uh, what, what you were alluding to, James, about um, what problem we're trying to solve. That's the way I have always in my whole career. That's for my sensibility. That's the question I asked, and in working on the book. There was a long Twitter thread that happened maybe two years ago while I was working on the book where I asked – I had a different version of the questions. I'm like, hey, are there better versions of this? And a bunch of people chimed in with different alternatives, and I was convinced – I'm a skeptical New, York, New Yorker type. Like I tend to work like, what's wrong? Like it's, but a lot of people don't, and so that's why I inverted the question. I made it a positive one. But to mm -hmm. me, it's uh, – that's really what, – hey, what problem are we trying to solve here? Like what are we doing? Mm -hmm. um, but um, – you know, to the point about questions and like prioritizing the answers, um, that's really what makes design hard is uh, people end up rambling away. There's so many different possibilities for what you could do. 
And if you're not asking the question right and ensuring you work your way through to a coherent answer about prioritization, like is it the nurse that we're focusing on, the 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 patient, uh, the administrator, uh, who who like without that, um, that explains why so much of what gets made doesn't really progress because they've never sorted, they never prioritized those things. You suggest that we use the word quality more to rather than design to actually frame what we do. Yeah, I, I um, this is sort of the like language thing for designers. We really, really like our language. We want it to be on our turf, but our turf tends to be small. <laughs> so, so we have more to gain by using terminology of whoever we're trying to convince. And quality is a word to me that always gets people to stop for a second. That everyone, every engineer, every executive believes, however misguided, <laughs> that they do quality work. And that's really what they want to do. So when you use the word quality, it engages a part of their brain that they have an emotional – this is my theory, right? I don't have data to support this other than anecdotal life, life experience. But you say quality now, and somehow that opens their mind a bit more. When you say design, there's a lot of preconceptions they have about that that as a designer are probably limiting. But you say quality. We want to make a quality product, don't we, boss? And they go, yeah, of course we do. Well, how? And then you set, you're setting them up. Well, then how can it be this hard for our primary customer to do this task? Mm. You're challenging them on their integrity around quality. Mm. That's way mm. better than saying, you know, well, we're violating heuristic number seven on Jacob Neal's. Like, <laughs> like, fuck, what? <laughs> like, they're just going to look at you like you're from another planet. And so um, that's, that was the spirit of that. Use the language mm. of who, the most powerful people in the room, and quality will get you a lot closer. I mean, I like that because, yeah, design, that's one of those things I think everyone has an opinion about design. I mean, we're, we're kind of like, I suppose, built to say, you know, good sofa, bad sofa, or, you know, that's a nice coffee cup. That's not, I mean, we're, we're doing that kind mm. of value judgment the whole time, that subjective opinion of design the whole time. But you're, I think you're right about quality. That's that's not something we judge as subjective. I don't think in the same way. We're, we're we're trained during our lives in a different way to kind of like, oh, that's a quality car. Oh, that's a quality. It's not subjective in the same way as we're taught to be with design. Hmm. Or at least it just it gets you out of this, the limitations of how you're perceived. You know, hmm. and so that that's part of my experience when I was a PM. I'm lead. I'm, I am the leader of a project, so engineers, testers, designers, they look to, I'm the decision maker, I'm, at least I'm leading the decision making process. And so the ones who were more effective with me were ones who could speak on my terms as the trade-off person. Yes, your design idea is great, but if I invest in this, I have less resources for something else. So mm -hmm. the fact you're telling me that this is an important design consideration has value doesn't help me make the decision. If you're telling me that the argument is the overall quality, totally, in totality is going to be better if I follow your advice and that's better than investing in this other thing that makes my judgment I'm far more receptive to being persuaded if it's at this great you're thinking a little bit bigger than just your your specialization and quality starts to get you on that path as does saying arguing as a design person I believe we should go this way it's probably a better business decision mm -hmm. like if the designer says that 
then the product manager, who's usually the defender of the business, is in a very different posture in the conversation. It's not a, it's not a head-to-head battle anymore. What, the design? So now there's more room in the conversation for the best interest of the project. And um, so that's, that's where I've tried to poke at for the designers reading the book of, and it's subtle. I don't hit designers over the head with it, of suggesting there are better ways to tell this story. There are better metaphors to use. There's better language. And it, it, the book is steeped in these, what I think are smarter and better ways to talk about what we do. Do you tackle bad design as a, as a phrase that we, we use? I, mean, I think in there, like, you know, we, we, I've said myself during this episode, um, good design and bad design. <laughs> um, I mean, and then also kind of like that hasn't been designed. So it's, you've got that three-way thing, haven't you? It's oh, no one's bothered designing that. Yeah. Uh, there's a quote early in the book. I forget, I forget who it's from, um, but he was a, he's a bookmaker. And his quote was basically that there's never a question of there not being a, not being a, de- a design. Anything that is made has a design, even if the people making it weren't thinking about the design at all. Mm-hmm. It still has a design. And it's probably going to be bad if no one was uh, no one was conscientiously thinking about it. It's probably not going to have a clear problem to solve. It probably was not thoughtful about who it was designed for. All, all the four questions and all the other ones too. But yeah. bad design is always context sensitive. And that's one of the big things uh, in the book in like chapter three or four is about how do you know something is good without asking these questions? You know, you could, you look at a car and go, that's a great looking, it's a great car. Uh, drives so fast and I like fast cars. Mm. But then if you ask, well, wait a second, who's the car for? Is it for a family of six where they need to go to soccer practice? Then this is actually now a bad car for that purpose. Mm. And even as designers, I think we often jump into projecting our values onto objects without asking the question of who is it for and what, what, what was it trying to improve mm. for those people? Wow, that, that actually brought back a memory for me where my dad bought a Jaguar when I was little and, and the engine broke down after a week. That was, <laughs> I had week, not thought week. about, yeah, after one week, I had not <laughs> thought about that for years and years. That was so funny. <laughs> because that when he was a family man, that was too small of a car for us. Probably, obviously. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Probably not, not, the right pro, not the right customer market mm. fit for mm. your family. But you touched on something else that is very related to this, which sort of was painful to think about almost because you want to do your best as a designer. But you talk about there's also something called budget products. And those also need to be put out there because they are part of doing business. And sometimes so there are these fundamental uh, things you have (laughs) have to think about uh, to actually, well, uh, trade-offs, I guess, to, to... as a designer where you actually have to realize that I'm not doing my best work because I'm not supposed to right here. Yeah. That's a, that's a very sensible thing to acknowledge about any kind of work that I'm on this project in this business Mm. and the goals of the project for this project, my expertise might be of low value to this project and that's okay. That's okay. I, I'm, I'm employed by this company. They have money to pay me because of all the different kinds of projects they choose and the different priorities they put on those projects. That is okay. That is part of how I am paid. <laughs> These projects that are not exciting for me, 
but have value and serve a customer possibly well. That's, that's a mature attitude about the role that design plays in the world. But again, that's not what we go into design for. That's not what we're taught in design school about how you're going to fit into corporate, the realities of corporations and organizations. But what you're suggesting there is this a more mature attitude. Or at least to say, if I do want this project to be something I'm excited about, then I have to influence the stakeholders of the project to change the goals of the project. I have to have that skill and develop it and realize that's part mm-hmm. of my job then if I want to work on more things in this organization <laughs> that are more exciting for me. I have to come up with go- a good business argument for that. And if you don't want to do that, I, I, and a lot of the advice I'm, you, you're provoking me to, to try to give, I end up hearing a lot, okay, but why should I have to do that? And my answer is, you don't. I'm not telling you you have to do any of these things. But if you're going to complain that the company that pays you, you knew what products they made before they hired you, you know, you have some sensibility about what, who has power and who doesn't, to look at that and go, it's broken and wrong and I'm just not going to participate. All right. Like, you have put yourself in that place. Uh, you're limiting yourself then to their definition of what design is, their definition of what you can contribute. You're limiting yourself because you're allowing them to decide it for you. And I don't think that's really what we want. I think we really do want to be more influential. We really do want to help the company do better and make better products, but that's not going to come out of your design expertise. It's going to come out of the relationships you build, whose trust you earn, how you learn to become influential and persuasive. And, um, a lot of designers just don't seem to want to do that, which is fine, but then don't complain about why no one listens to you because that's we're on their turf. That's some really, really good, solid advice <laughs> that I don't hear a lot of people say, actually. So thank you for that. And thank you for being on the show, Scott. It was so much fun. I could speak for an hour more, I guess, but uh, we're going to round off there. <laughs> <laughs> this was fun. I, your questions are good, and you folks are, are delightful hosts. Thanks for having me. Oh, a lot of things I'm thinking about and reflecting about after talking to Scott. But one thing is this whole idea about that we do good design and we do well, occasionally bad design and we're maybe very conscious, self-conscious about when we've done bad design. And I was thinking about how even our good design can be bad and how maybe as designers we we have to be more ready to um accept that our good design isn't isn't a final majestic thing and um there's actually a, I'm going to read a little quote from Scott's book that we didn't bring up in the interview um I think it's relevant um sometimes bad experiences happen because you're using something that was designed to solve someone else's problem it's like trying on a shirt two sizes too large or two sizes too small the design itself might be okay, okay for another person but it's a mismatch for you. Yeah. So, you know. Exactly. I, I don't know how much we are, how good we are really at, at accepting and understanding that a good design can be bad as well. Well, it, it has to do with intent. I mean, we talked about that everything is design. Uh, and sometimes you know and realize that you are designing and then you pay attention to, to things that can go wrong. But you, that also means that you have to acknowledge that you'll never be able to 
understand everything that can happen and all the parameters that go into it. Uh, I'm actually having experience with almost the opposite that my bad design is good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something that I feel is not my best work. It, I wouldn't even, I mean, if, if I, I, don't, I mean, I don't have a portfolio, I don't use, use portfolios, but if I had one, I wouldn't put it in there because I really don't like the look of it. Mm. But when I meet users who use that platform, they are so happy with it. I've seen people blog about it, how much it's solved so many of their problems. And I realize I'm not the target group. And I'm so happy that I made it into something that I don't really like myself because that, that means someone else likes it more. Yeah. And as well, that one, one of the things that I teach is I, I highlight the point of when you're doing um, analytics, like you maybe would have to be aware of measuring things that go off the, the, the righteous path. You know, when you, when you, we do all these flows and plan all these you know, specific path through products and things, and we, we don't always design when you've skidded off the edges and gone onto other routes and things. Mm. Um, mm. And, and that's, again, I suppose, accepting or understanding at least there are many paths that we don't design for. So our, our good designs can be both good and bad. For, and bad and both right. can be good, so, like you said. Uh, sort of like you were saying when we were talking with Scott is that, I mean, do we, should we even be using the words good and bad design? Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we be talking about the outcomes? Really? Exactly. And it's, I mean, it's, it's always a scale. There's a gray area. It works for some people. It hurts maybe some people. Does it hurt a lot of people? Then it's really bad. Does it hurt people who are already oppressed and, and, and hurt by other things? Then it's really bad. Does it hurt people who are in a privileged position already, but the other people benefit from it? Then maybe it's better. It's 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 so hard. Mm. It's there's it's not black and white. Yeah, and that that goes into what we say, or this thing about whether you're saying like designer quality was what we've talked to Scott yes. about to mm. um, was it after the interview, and how design is a subjective term. That we have personal opinions about design, whereas quality, it's kind of more accepted that something is good quality. Uh, or, or low quality there's a there's a different scale to it it's not as subjective yeah I, I really really like the point he's making about how how it's 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 quite intriguing how bad we are at explaining our own profession and our work and the value we provide given that we are supposed to be <laughs> that is our profession <laughs> to be able to explain things so that other people understand them uh, and i think there's a lot of work to be done in how we frame our work within project teams and to stakeholders and to managers uh, to help them understand why we're doing the stuff we're doing. Yeah. And also this whole thing about, um, well, feedback, not just individual feedback, but feedback about the things you're working on. Like mm. when, you know, if you're embedded deep down in organizations and you're working on a specific thing, but you realize something, and it's maybe outside the scope of the area you're working on. But but yeah. getting that message across to mm. other parts of organizations or other bits of the product, in some, especially larger organizations, that's just impossible. Exactly. Uh, and that also alludes to something Scott was talking about, where, you, I mean, you know the job you chose, you know the product you're working on, uh, how much did you expect to be able to influence, be, I mean, and how bad do you feel about the work you're doing? These are all things that you have to be considering, but maybe you can't change everything. You can't 
and sometimes you need to adapt and sometimes you need to, to accept the situation and do good work elsewhere and sometimes like we we conclude you have to find another job if you don't feel okay with it but just that idea of of finding out what you are contributing to and not feeling okay with it that's really important and, and also the the spinning around to the positive side of things like what are you trying to improve like scott himself yeah. said that yes you know, rather than that using the questions like mm. what's the problem we're trying to solve it's like mm. what are you trying mm. to improve so if you mm. even if maybe you're not um completely satisfied with what you're working with just now if you can if you can hold on to what you're trying to improve then maybe you'll feel a bit better about it anyway right and realize that you you may not be improving it in, at the rate you want. You may not be improving it in all the ways that you want, but you're, at least you're moving in the right direction. You're improving something for someone. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I really I really like the framing of those four questions as well, which helps us. It makes it easier sometimes, and just going back to something that feels easier to talk about helps everyone on a team. Yeah. Recommended listening. What do you reckon? Well, you actually put something in our notes, uh, and you put uh, episode 195, Infused Design, with Jared Spool. And I don't know what we talked about in that episode. Now, the reason why <laughs> I've referenced that one is because, if I remember correctly, that's the one where Jared talks about um, uh, con well, when you were kind of like conscious of your incompetence and you you were kind of oh yes unconscious of your incompetence mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. Um, mm -hmm. um, we we do talk. And we talk as well about everyone being a designer and you know, we're about protectionists and whether designers should code, all these kind of things. So right. we look at um, a few plays. It's one of his playbook, Jared Spool's um, yeah. playbook. So that felt That's a really relevant, good one. Um, good choice. To listen to next. Yeah. You should listen to these things I put, I put in the recommendations pair. So yeah. <laughs> I should. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for spending your time with us. Uh, links and notes and a full transcript for this episode can be found on uxpodcast.com. And don't forget to press follow or subscribe if you haven't done so already. And remember, you can also contribute to funding the show by visiting uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. a song right now about getting my door lock replaced okay that sounds pretty cool yeah there's a key change at the end <laughs> <laughs> oh